0: Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, one of the responsibilities and privileges of being an elder at Hiawatha is you get to preach once or twice a year. And most of that happens in the summer when Chris and Spencer, uh, who are part of what they're paid for is to preach, is they're on vacation. So uh, this Sunday I get to preach. So we're glad you're here. And also, this Sunday is kind of fun for me because it was either yesterday or the Saturday before, I also preached last week, but I didn't mention it because I wasn't sure if it was last week or this week, it was the 21st anniversary of the first time I ever preached. So you get to celebrate my anniversary with me. Congratulations! Uh, gifts are not required, but I wouldn't necessarily say no to them. So, uh, <laughs> we are in Genesis and we are moving along quite a bit quicker than we were at the beginning. You may have been worried when we started that it would take us years to get through, but instead of covering a few verses at a time, now we can cover a chapter, a chapter and a half at a time. This week we're going to do Genesis 20, which is the story of Abraham and Abimelech, and if you're familiar with that, uh, you know a little bit of what's coming, and if not, hopefully you'll be familiar with it by the end. So, let's get started. We'll read the passage and then go from there. Genesis 20, 1 through 18. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he uh, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told him all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom such a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? That you did this thing. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, no not though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right, so we're going to get into the passage and talk about this. But one quick note, if you've been here uh, for Genesis, this is not the first time Abraham has done this. He actually did this earlier in Genesis, the exact same thing when Uh, He and his wife were in Egypt and said, tell everyone you're my sister. And then Pharaoh thought, oh, she's pretty attractive and she's not taken. I'll take her into my harem. And then God's like, "Mm, no, no, no. And now it's happening again. And if you were here last week, Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, uh, there was a mob that was trying uh, to get into his house and harm some guests that he had. A mob of men. And he said to the mob of men, don't harm these guests. Here, I have two virgin daughters. Take them. Have sex with them, do whatever you want to them, do that instead. And uh, so the men in the Bible have uh, not been treating women so well from what we've seen, Abraham and his family. And actually, spoiler alert, in a few weeks, Abraham's son Isaac is going to do the same thing with his wife that Abraham does with Sarah, with the same king, actually, with Abimelech. And he's going to be like, what's wrong with your family? Why do you keep doing this? But a quick note, just to say, Uh, Keep in mind as you read through the Bible that there is a discrepancy that you'll see between how God intends women in the Bible to be treated and how the men of the Bible actually treat women. The men of the Bible are not God. They are sinful. They are flawed. What Abraham does here with Sarah is sin. It is evil. He should not have done it. But if you want to see how God intends women to be treated, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at how Jesus treats women. And you'll see a huge contrast between how Jesus treats women and how almost every other man in every other situation treats women in the Bible. So, a little side note. Now, moving on, we're going to quickly review God's promises to Abraham. So God's made some promises to Abraham, and that's going to play kind of a big part in today's sermon. You can see there the four things he's promised. He's promised Abraham land, offspring, protection, and that Abraham would bless the whole world. So land comes from those passages. In Genesis 13, Abraham's standing in part of the land and God says, Okay, stop. Now look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, and look to the west. Everything you just saw is all going to be yours. I'm going to give you all the land you just saw with your eyes. So that's the promise. gives him the promise of land. And then offspring, in a couple different passages there, in Genesis 13... Abraham says, or Abraham, God says, Look at the dust. If someone can count all the dust on the earth, that's how many offspring you're going to have. Look up at the stars in the sky. If someone can count the stars in the sky, that's the number of offspring you're going to have. So he promises him basically an uncountable number of offspring. And then also. Protection, God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm your shield, I'm your protection. You don't have to trust in other people. You don't have to trust in nations that you come across. You don't have to be afraid of any of those things. I'm God, I will protect you. And then the final one in Genesis 12, God also promises, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. You are going to be a blessing to the whole world. So these are the promises that have been stated You can see a few of them just once, but several multiple times, and they're going to continue to come up through Genesis. God's going to continue to remind Abraham that he's made these promises. With some of them, he's going to keep expanding them and making them even bigger and more grandiose. Uh, So Abraham knows these things. Now, unfortunately for Abraham, he's been promised that he's going to have offspring and that the offspring is going to come through Sarah, but he does not yet have offspring through Sarah. And he's almost 100 years old at this time. And Sarah's almost 90 years old, and he's like, all right, God, I know you promised that, but maybe you're not familiar with how biology works. Let me explain a few things to you. This isn't going to work. This can't happen anymore. And so in previous chapters, Abraham has tried to fix that problem himself and just made it worse. So these are the promises. And Abraham is putting the promise in jeopardy in this chapter. So Back, verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, the beginning of Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham when Abraham was living far away in a different land and says, All right, get up, leave your land, leave your family, take your wife, take your servants and your flocks and all that, and have your cousin come with, but leave your parents and your other extended family and follow me. I'm going to lead you to a different land. I'm going to bless you richly. I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. And Abraham does it. But we see here a little backstory that when they left, Abraham says to his wife, okay, do this one thing for me. Wherever we go, whenever we're in a town or a city or a kingdom and we meet people, tell them you're my sister. Don't tell them you're my wife. Just tell them you're my sister. And so here they are. Abraham says of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech the king, of course, thinks, okay, like she's not taken, she's a sister, she's attractive. I think I'll take her. She'll be my wife. So Abraham's putting the promise in jeopardy for a couple reasons. One, so if Abimelech takes her and then gets her pregnant, well now Sarah has this child, but it's not Abraham's child. So now there's huge problem with the promise, because okay, now the Sarah part of it's fulfilled, but it's not coming through Abraham. Also there's the problem, Abraham is just one guy. Now he's got a pretty big entourage with him. Earlier in Genesis it says he has about 300 men who are trained in combat and warfare and have weapons, so he's got kind of his own private like army to protect him and he's got other family and lots of flocks and gold and other things but he's just one guy and it's just one family Abimelech is the king of a nation so if Abraham decides he's made a mistake and comes to Abimelech and says you know actually I lied she's my wife and God made me these promises I kind of need her back sorry about that I can give you some sheep or some goats and Abimelech decides to say or I'm the king and this is my nation and maybe I'll just kill you and take your wife and take your stuff. And what are you going to do about? You and your 300 men against my army and my kingdom. Maybe I'll just do whatever I want to you. So there he, Abraham is putting the promise in jeopardy for a couple of reasons because Abimelech might just decide to kill him and take his stuff or Abimelech might treat him nicely but get Sarah pregnant and now the promise uh, has been broken. So Abraham is trying to protect himself. He's trying to protect his family. He's saying, you know, if they know you're my wife, you're so beautiful, they'll kill you. So we'll just tell people you're my sister, and then they won't kill me, and we can kind of work through these situations and come out the other side of them and move on, and eventually, you know, you'll get pregnant, and this will be fine. It'll work out. But he's putting the promise in jeopardy. He's trying to fix things himself, and it's not working out. And then you've got Abimelech, and he's just oblivious to the promise. He has no clue what's going on, this... Guy comes wandering from a faraway land, maybe he's heard of him, maybe not. He sees this woman that's with him that's apparently unattached and beautiful and decides, I want her. He has no idea that promises have been made, that God's involved in this. He's just living his life and he takes her as his wife. And then uh, God approaches him in the dream and says, actually, now I'm going to kill you. Because that's another man's wife. And he's like, whoa, whoa, time out here. I had no clue. Like, I don't know what's going on here. I'm dreaming and you're appearing to me and I had no clue what's going on. Now Epimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He himself said she's my sister. She said he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. He's like, they told me they were siblings, both of them. Like, I had no clue. I don't know what's going on. These people don't live here. I've never met them before. I'm innocent here. I was doing things that were right. As far as I knew, she was not attached. There's nothing wrong with what I did. And God then, obviously from early in the passage, agrees. Is like, yes, you did do this in the integrity of your heart. And that's why I didn't allow you to touch her. I didn't let you sleep with her. I kept you from doing something that would make me have to kill you. Now give her back. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you and your household. So... Abraham is putting the promise in jeopardy. Abimelech's just kind of oblivious to it and gets sucked into the middle of the situation. And then you've got God, and God is the one protecting the promise. So Abraham's been trying to protect the promise, whether through trying to fulfill it through Sarah's uh, servant and having getting the servant pregnant and having a child and saying, look God, look what I did, now you can just... Instead of this child that was going to come through Sarah, just give all the blessing to this other child. I've got it all worked out. Or here lying about their relationship to try and protect their lives and protect their relationship, which is kind of counterintuitive. Uh, And then Abimelech, who's just sucked into the middle, but God's the one who's actually protecting the promises. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you've taken, for she's a man's wife. A pretty severe, pretty direct way to start protecting that promise. He doesn't come and say, you know, there's this guy Abraham. He keeps making a bunch of poor decisions. I've made promises to him. Let me lay out some of what's going to be in the future, but you just need to give his wife back. No, he doesn't explain the situation. He just comes and says, she's someone's wife. Give her back or you're a dead man. Look at all the things here that God is doing. God's the one who's initiating and doing everything in uh, this dream with Abimelech. God's the one who comes to Abimelech. Abimelech didn't, you know, before he slept, pray to his gods. All right, if there's anything weird going on with the situation, show me in a dream so I'm not messing things up. And then God's the one who says to him, like, Abimelech comes to him in a dream or God comes to Abimelech in a dream, makes that opening statement, and Abimelech doesn't just then say, okay, well, let's sort this out. Can you explain this all to me? Tell me how this happened? Is there a way we can work this out? He's just like, no, no, I'm innocent. Not my fault, not my fault. Then God said to him, you know, I know, I was the one who kept you. I did not let you. God's the one. He knows everything that's been going on. He's the one who kept Abimelech from sinning. He's the one who didn't let Abimelech touch her. So God is protecting the promise. Abraham's trying to do it and is failing. Abimelech's caught in the middle and uh, ends up temporarily on the wrong side of God's wrath because of it. But God's the one protecting the promise. So Abimelech and Abraham in this passage are both being motivated by fear. So Abimelech is motivated by a fear of God. Understandable, if you're dreaming and God appears to you in a dream and says, if you don't do this thing, I'm going to kill you, seems like it's good motivation. So what does Abimelech do? What's his response to this fear of God that gets put in him? So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. So this happens to him in a dream, and he doesn't sleep in. He gets up early in the morning and is like, we have to solve this. We have to fix this right now. Tells his servants these things, and what's the response? They're afraid. They're very afraid. Of course they're afraid. God said he's going to kill them if they don't do this thing. So what does Abimelech then do? He gives Sarah back. But he doesn't just give Sarah back and say, you know, God appeared to me. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Here's your wife back. Now get out of here. Nope, he goes above and beyond. He gives Abraham sheep and oxen, male and female servants. And Abraham already had abundance of this stuff. So it's not like he needed any. But Abimelech's like, all right, I'm not just giving your wife back. Here's all this other stuff. Take some of my riches. Share in that. I'm going to pay you a thousand pieces of silver. This is proof that I didn't touch your wife. Proof in the sight of everyone. I'm paying uh, this off to show like, I didn't touch her, I didn't do anything to her, I'm innocent. She's innocent, she's vindicated, nothing happened. And then on top of that, Abimelech doesn't say, now get out of here. Go somewhere else, I don't want any more trouble with you. He's like, my whole land, my whole kingdom is open. Live wherever you want. No restrictions. Where do you want to live? You go and you live there. It's all yours. So Abimelech's fear of God motivates him to respond well. And he gives Sarah back, he goes above and beyond, and uh, that piece of the situation is taken care of and reconciled. Now contrast that with Abraham's fear. Abraham's fear of men, not of God. So when Abimelech calls Abraham and he's like, what is wrong with you? Why did you do this? What's going on? What did I do to you that caused you to do this? What does Abraham say? And notice the irony of this statement. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And what is it that motivates Abimelech to give Sarah back? It's fear of God. So Abraham's thinking here, none of these people fear God. If they know the truth, they're going to kill me and they're going to take my wife. And the opposite is true. It's fear of God that motivates them to give Sarah back, uh, to right the wrong that was done. So Abraham's fear is unjustified. Again, Abraham's trying to fix this situation by himself. And he's just making it worse. Proverbs 29 says, Fear of man lays a snare. And you see that here. Abraham has fear of man. He tries to fix a situation. And it just creates this snare. A snare for Abimelech, a snare for Abraham. It makes things worse, not better. So contrast that with fear of God. Proverbs says a lot of stuff about the fear of God, but a few things it says that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, and that it leads to life. And you see some of that in this passage. You see Abimelech has this fear of God, and it leads him to make a wise decision, to give another man's wife back and not die. Very wise. It leads to life. It leads to him and his family not being destroyed. So in that moment, in that instance, it leads them to life. So, uh, fear of man and fear of God. Fear, in general, is not necessarily a bad thing, right? There are good fears. A fear of uh, breaking limbs or dying if I fall from too high of a height is one of the things that keeps me from climbing up on my roof and jumping off to see if I can fly or do some flip or whatever it might be. If you have children that are young, there's a certain healthy fear of a parent. Now, you don't want only fear. But there's a certain fear of a parent that's healthy. So when a parent says stop when they're going to touch a hot stove or don't when they're going to run out in the street, the child feels that moment of fear and stops and doesn't harm themselves. That's a healthy thing. But the other side of that is if all you have is fear, long-term that's not healthy. If you have a child that only fears their parent and doesn't love them, that's going to make for a very unhealthy relationship long-term. There are pieces of it short-term that will be very healthy. But long-term, that's not healthy. And the same is true uh, of God. There's a fear of God that is a healthy thing. And some people, when they talk about fear of God, they'll redefine it to mean, well, fear of God doesn't really mean being afraid. It means, like, respect or just respecting God. No, Abimelech was afraid here. He was afraid God was going to kill him. It wasn't like, Oh, I respect you, God. I respect that opinion. No, he was afraid. He was very afraid. There's a fear of God that's a healthy thing. But if all you ever have is fear of God, if it never moves beyond that and doesn't move on to love, the relationship you have with God will be extremely unhealthy. Extremely unhealthy. Because if all you have is fear, remember what uh, Proverbs says? It says it's the beginning of things. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end. It's the beginning of knowledge, but it's not the end. It leads to life, but fear itself is not life. It shows the path and leads the way. But life is somewhere else. If all you have is fear, all you have is the beginning. The end, you might think, would be courage, right? Contrast of fear is courage. But... Although biblically we see that sometimes, in terms of relationship with God, the contrast of fear is not courage, but love. Which is interesting, you often think of fear and courage as contrasts, and love and hate as contrasts. But here we see love and fear are contrasts. So, there's fear of God, which is the beginning of these things. And we see that, if you know anything about Abimelech, so Abimelech and the nation uh, that he rules over is eventually going to become the Philistines. And if you're familiar with the rest of the Old Testament, the Philistines are this nation eventually that rise up against Israel as they're trying to take over the Promised Land. If you know the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. So this is a nation that eventually loses this fear of God. They mock Israel, they try and destroy Israel, and God wipes them out. So fear of God can be a short-term motivator that can do some good. But long-term, it's not enough. Long-term, it's not enough. And those of you who are parents with your children, you know that. Fear can be a good short-term motivator for something. It's very helpful. But long-term love is a much better motivator. Love ultimately brings about the fulfillment of the promises. So God makes these promises to Abraham in the Old Testament for land, for offspring, for protection, and to be a blessing to the world. And you think, okay, like that's great, and I've read some of the Old Testament, and that stuff happened in various ways, but you know, I don't live in Israel, and Abraham's been dead a long time, and so have all the kings of Israel, and why do I care about this? Why does this matter to me? It matters to me, and it matters to you, because the ultimate fulfillment of these promises that God made take place not when Israel enters the promised land and destroys their enemies, and then under King Solomon has about 40 years of just peaceful, prosperous existence. That's not the end. That's still a foreshadowing. The end of these promises, the complete fulfillment of them come in Jesus Christ. If you've been around Hiawatha at all, you know we're all about the gospel. And this is just another picture of the gospel and of what Jesus did. So John 3, 16 and 17, if you've grown up in the church, you're probably very familiar with these verses. You may have memorized them, but there's a reason that they're uh, so common and that uh, they're so often read and memorized because they are just this great, very compact and very complete Uh, proclamation of the gospel for God so loved the world he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him this is the fulfillment of that promise when uh, earlier in the service when Isaiah 53 was read did you notice it says at the beginning of the passage it was God's will to crush him talking about Jesus So Jesus is crushed and killed. But then it also says, a few lines later, that he will see his offspring. Now how can a dead man see offspring? I'm no expert, but that doesn't seem like it works. A dead man who's had no children can't see his offspring. How does that work? Well, it works because Jesus rises from the dead. And the children, the offspring that are being talked about, are not physical, biological children, Jesus never married. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have physical, biological, biological, blah, blah, blah. Biological children. Um, But all of us in this room who are believers, we are those children. We are those children. We are the offspring of God. That is the fulfillment. God's love motivates him to send Christ to die for us In our place so that we can receive the benefits and the blessings of God. All the blessings promised to Abraham, we receive in different ways. The promise of offspring, we are the offspring. We are now part of that family. We are part of the family of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, that is God's desire for you. That is our desire for you. That you would know God, that you would join that family, that you would become part of those promises, that you would receive those blessings. The promise of land. So, the land he's talking about is not a physical kingdom. It's not physical land. When Jesus comes, he says, The kingdom of God is near. My kingdom is near. That promise is coming to fulfillment. But then he says, You are receiving a kingdom whose foundations cannot be shaken, a kingdom not of this world. This building is not part of the kingdom, it's the people in the building. We're part of the kingdom of God. So it's no longer physical space. We don't have to move to the Middle East to live in a particular location to receive that blessing. We are the offspring of God. That kingdom is coming in the future. And we don't know exactly what it's going to be like. We get little hints of it. It's real and there's pieces of it that have physicality. But it's spiritual too. It's not what you're thinking. It's not this physical land we have to occupy and defend. God is bringing a kingdom That is not of this world, a kingdom whose foundations cannot be shaken. Think of all the nations that have existed on earth, all the nations that were strong, and now what's left of them? Most of them, not much. Think of the ancient Egyptian empire, huge empire, ruled most of the known world in its prime. What's left of it now? A few pyramids, a sphinx. The nation of Egypt exists still, of course, but the power that it had and the scope that it had has been gone for a long time. Think of the Babylonian Empire, or the Assyrian Empire, or the Roman Empire. These empires that at their time ruled the world, and now they're gone. Some of them you see little leftover pieces, monuments they built, but the power and the influence of those kingdoms has been gone for a long time. God is bringing about a kingdom whose foundations cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will never end, that will never fail. Because he rules that kingdom. And he is the one who will make sure it endures. Kingdom and land. Protection. God is the one who protects us. The ultimate protection he's given us, John 3 here, protection from eternal death. We will not perish but have eternal life. There's other protection he gives. But the main protection he gives is not physical protection. It doesn't mean you're never going to stub your toe or you're never going to get sick or that you might not have uh, some... Long-term or terminal physical illness, God certainly does and can heal those things. But the primary protection He gives us now is protection that has the scope of eternity, not the scope of the next fifty or eighty years that you have on this life. A uh, one of my friends, her dad is a doctor now, retired. And he said to me once, he was talking about, he was a missionary in Africa, and talking about different things he had to do that he hadn't been trained for, because there was no one else. He's like, you go to the hospital, I'm the only doctor. It's not like you see the specialist for this or this. And talking about some rather miraculous surgeries and uh, things he was able to do, and I was commenting on and wow, that's really cool that you were able to do that. And he said, yeah, there are some things that are cool, and God definitely was with me and let that happen But he said, you know, Jesse, the most miraculous healing that any surgeon can ever do, the most miraculous brain surgery or whatever it is, it's all just temporary because that person is still going to die someday. You've extended their life, possibly for a long time, and there's worth in that certainly, but it doesn't cancel out death. That person who has a brain tumor that's removed and that person's healed, they're still going to die someday, whether of that or something else. The person who has a heart attack and you bring them back with CPR, yeah, they're going to live a while longer, maybe a lot longer, but they're going to die someday. Those are only temporary fixes. God gives us an eternal fix to that problem. And then a blessing to the whole world. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Through that, through what he's done, the entire world has been blessed. You have been blessed. Love, God's love is the fulfillment of that promise through Jesus Christ. Also, the casting out of fear. In John three seventeen, where it says, God didn't send His son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved. And how many of us are there, even knowing that, that feel that fear of condemnation from God, that worry that we're going to mess up and God's going to strike us with lightning like Zeus would or something like that. We feel fear. Why is that? 1 John 4 sheds some light on that. So we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So, there's a lot in this passage. But basically the idea is, okay, there's this love that comes from God. And now we've come to know that love. And we believe that love because we've experienced it and we've seen it. We've seen it in God's word. We've experienced it in our own lives. And God is love. So it's not just that God is loving or that God loves people. He is love. And so those of us who believe in Jesus Christ... It says that we are in Christ. So we are in love. And not just in love like, oh, I'm in love with this person or I'm in love with this, per- with this thing or whatever it is. It's like, no, we are in love. God abides with us and we abide with him. We abide with love. But if that's so, why is there still fear? Why do we still experience fear? Because doesn't it say here that perfect love casts out fear? It's because our love has not yet been perfected. So God's love, from his side, the love is perfect. From our side, the experience of that love and our love that we give back to him as an overflow of the love he gives to us, that love is not perfect yet. Because sin still exists, right? Paul writes as a believer, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the evil things I don't want to do are the things I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, why is it like this? But then he says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. So someday, when we are perfected, once Christ is returned, and once all things are made new, fear will be completely eliminated forever. We will never again experience any kind of fear, because love will be perfected on both sides then. That's why we still experience fear, because our love has not yet been perfected. We don't fully believe and embrace the love that God has given us, because sin is still present. From God's side, the love is perfect. From our side, it is not yet. But be encouraged. Perfect love casts out fear. Love is the fulfillment of all the promises God has made through Jesus Christ. Love is the thing that casts out fear that lets us move beyond where Abraham and Abimelech were from this fear that can motivate short-term, but fear that's misplaced motivates us to do things that actually hinder God's promises rather than help them. And even fear that's well-placed in God motivates us only short-term. Just like Abimelech and the Philistines, eventually, fear, long-term, cannot motivate. So the conclusion. As you're sitting here this morning, are you oblivious to God's promises? Did you come in? Is it your first time here? Maybe you've never heard anything from the Bible before. You've never heard any of this. And now you've heard it and you're like, whoa, God made promises? And not just for some guy who lived thousands of years ago and died and apparently treated his family kind of poorly and made bad decisions, but God still loved him and cared for him. No, God made promises to you. If you're here this morning, God has made promises, and those are extended to you through Jesus Christ. Are you oblivious to those promises? If so, turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Find in him the fulfillment of all you're searching for in life. Not in all the ways that you want it to be fulfilled, but the fulfillment of all that you're searching for. Are you sitting here right now motivated or ruled by fear, whether fear of men or fear of God, and through that trying to fulfill God's promises under your own power? Abimelech paid a thousand pieces of silver and cattle and servants for Sarah. Jesus Christ paid his life for you. He gave the greatest payment that's ever been given. We don't have to be afraid. He died for us because of God's love. God loves us. Christ died for us. Love is now the motivation we have. The love of Jesus' example on the cross. That's why we preach the gospel. That is why we say the gospel is what motivates. Because it is. The gospel... uh, the the fullest demonstration of love that will ever be. What does God say to Abimelech? I'm the one who kept you from sinning. I'm the one who didn't let you touch her. God is still the one keeping us from sinning. Trying to do that on your own, trying to fulfill God's promises on your own, trying to live the life that you think God wants you to live on your own will fail. Because doing that, you are not being motivated by love. You're being motivated by fear. Or by sin, by pride, thinking, I don't need God, I can do this on my own, or by a thousand other things. But motivation by love through the gospel says, no, you, God, are the one who's going to keep me from sinning through Jesus Christ. You're the one who's going to complete what you've started, despite all the times I mess up. You're the one who's going to bring me safely to the end. Or are you here trusting that belief in Jesus is all you need to experience the fulfillment of all God's promises to you and ultimately in small ways now and in large ways ultimately the casting out of fear? And how cool is that? Like think for a moment what it would be like to never feel fear again. And to not have situations where like, oh, but if I didn't feel fear I might go play in the street and get run over by a car. It's like, nah, that stuff won't happen. To not feel fear again. There are pieces of that that are available now, and God's promised long-term that will be present. So wherever you're at this morning, if you're here and you're oblivious to God's promises, well, now you're not, because you've heard some of them this morning. So think about that. Think about what God has given, how much he cares about you, what Jesus Christ did for you so that you can take part in those promises of God, so that you can be free from sin, free from a fear of hell, free from a fear of God's punishment. If you're here and you're being motivated by something other than the gospel, other than the cross, other than God's love, what you're doing is ultimately just self-destructive. Short term, some good can come out of it and it can look like it's doing good. But long term, motivation by fear doesn't work. Turn to Jesus Christ. Look back to the cross again. And if you're here and you are believing in that and you are trusting in that, be encouraged and keep on in that. And remember that God is still the one keeping you from sinning, that your belief and trust in that is still from God, even in the moments where it's going good, that he's still the one fueling that and motivating that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did not leave us just with fear, but have given love. We thank you that you chose to die for us when we didn't deserve it that you are the one who keeps us from sinning, that through Jesus Christ you've given us that ultimate freedom from sin and from death and from the punishment we deserve. I pray, God, for all of us in this room, myself included, that wherever we're at with you, with motivations and with actions, that we would look to the cross, believe the gospel, and trust in the promises that you made thousands of years ago that still apply through your Son, that we would delight in the fact that you love us and that you want to be with us. Amen.